Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the July 30th, 2019 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, we're working the public theme pretty decently. Ana Gonzalez, Public Affairs Director of the Community Action Fund of Planned Parenthood, Orange and San Bernardino counties, will take up the reach of their local advocacy efforts amidst legislative, executive, and electoral changes afoot. In the second segment, Dr. Matthew Zahn, specialist in pediatric infectious diseases, currently serving as medical director of the Division of Epidemiology and Assessment for the Orange County Healthcare Agency, will offer insight about childhood immunization policy and trends in and around Orange County. We'll be right back after a station break, a short one. Welcome back to the show. My first guest is Ana Gonzalez, Public Affairs Director of Community Action Fund, the political action arm of Planned Parenthood Orange and San Bernardino counties. Prior to joining Planned Parenthood, she was a consulting partner at Luna Rosa, business development associate at California Consulting Community Outreach and Housing Initiatives Manager and Customer Advocacy Director at U.S. Bank and Home Preservation Program Manager at NeighborWorks of Orange County. She previously served as a board member of the National Junior Basketball League in Santa Ana, board president of Neighborhood Housing Services of the Inland Empire, and board secretary of Housing Opportunities Collaborative Orange County. Anna completed her associate's degree in real estate at Irvine Valley College and her bachelor's of arts in legal and general studies at Chapman University. She joins me in studio today to take up all the campaigns and policies that Planned Parenthood Community Action Fund is involved in, and it is extensive. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Anna Gonzalez. Thank you, Claudia, and thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here today. Well, it's good having you. I'd like to start by posting listeners that although it is a matter of some interest, in this interview, we will not take up the recent change of leadership, the stepping down of Dr. Leanna Wen as president of Planned Parenthood, as the Orange County the Orange San Bernardino County chapter of Planned Parenthood is wholly separate from Planned Parenthood's national operations. Now, the first question I just want to ask you on it, would you tell us briefly about the mission of the Community Action Fund PAC, a 501c4 nonpartisan political advocacy and public policy arm of Planned Parenthood? Great. And before we talk about the Community Action Fund, I just want to get you acquainted with our affiliate, which is Planned Parenthood of Orange and San Bernardino counties, which is our coverage area. And what I like to always tell folks and and your listeners is to just think of our services as threefold. We do healthcare. So we have three basic legs of service, which is healthcare, which is our health centers that you all know and love. We also have our community education side, which educates our community as well. And Finally, we have the advocacy side or the political arm, which is the Community Action Fund. And since we're on the theme of threes, we do three (laughs) things. So we educate, we protect, and we elect. So who do we educate? We educate our community and elected officials about issues that are impacting reproductive justice and health care and reproductive health care. And we do this through 
basic education and awareness, and of course, through direct and indirect lobbying. We also protect our funding streams, our healthcare funding streams, through legislation and policies at all levels of government. And finally, we do elect pro-reproductive healthcare champions and education candidates at all levels of government as well. So again, we educate, protect, elect, and we make sure we are advocating for access to healthcare and access to reproductive healthcare. And I... It came up in a recent meeting where we met at mm -hmm. uh, where you're the, one of the interesting questions was about your you work collaboratively with the ACLU in some of these activities. Right. ACLU is a great partner, especially here in Southern California. And one of the um, most recent activities I can recall is uh, CHIA, which is the California Healthy Youth Act. They have been one of the biggest proponents of the California Healthy Youth Act. And what the California Healthy Youth Act is, just to give your listeners a, a quick primer, that is the... It is, it is a law that passed in 2016, and what it does is it mandates comprehensive sexual health education in public schools. And this is very important. This is something that we uh, advocate for. And working with the ACLU, they, are working, they were working to make sure that, one, everyone knew that it was law, and two, uh, that um, schools begin to start coming into, into compliance with this particular law as well. So we're, so we're bringing in that program, among many that we're going to talk about. Mm -hmm. What is the role of the Orange County Board of Supervisors uh, disposition toward that? And how is Planned Parenthood's uh, involved in ensuring compliance with this act? Right. Well, with regards to the Board of Supervisors, again, this is state It is law. It passed in 2016. So they, like all other school districts, have to come into compliance with the law. And as far as who's charged with compliance, this is a state-run program. So this would be the state that's going to be taking charge of that specific compliance in school districts, as well as the board of uh, the uh, school board. The State Board of Education, or are there any health agency? Or? It would be the State Board of Just, Education. Okay, yeah. that's the role. Okay, fine. So let's go into the, the, there's so many different organizations and clubs that you're managing. There's the Planned Parenthood Gen Action uh, group, and one of which is on the UCI campus. Talk about that. We'll go with, through lots of those councils and leadership clubs that you've set up. Great. No, so the Planned Parenthood Generation Action Groups are campus organizing structures, and what they are is they're campus clubs, and they are extensions of the Community Action Fund on campus on college campuses. So we have them across Orange and San Bernardino County. And of course we have one right here at UCI. So I am gonna do a little plug for them if you are interested in- Oh, please, this is what I the point that? is. This oh is yeah, what it is, this is right? the community radio doing its work. So it's PP Generation Action UCI on Facebook and you're welcome to go there and see all the wonderful activities that they've done. Um, however, they have helped us in the last cycle by making sure we were calling voters and doing voter engagement calls, getting out the vote for the 2018 the midterms. In addition, um, they also helped us at the Women's March. They were a huge component of getting volunteers out and making sure we had up to about 400 volunteers just to manage that march. And we did have a few uh, board members lead the march with uh, with at the banner. So it was something really, really great. And they just got, I believe, two new board members, and they're ready to hit the ground running. So I would check them out okay. on Facebook. All right. There's also the Latina Leadership Council. Yes, so we have two different uh, councils. One is the Latino Leadership Council, and that started over 10 years ago, and it's a group that we're very, very proud of. And 
what this was is really to figure out what were the gaps in service to the Latino community. So we were able to put together a group of over now it's about over 50 60 organizations and community leaders that basically tell us what the gaps are in services and how we can solution find a solution to those there's a semantic point i'm just mm-hmm. correcting myself it's really it's you're saying it's latino and i for some reason i i assumed a gender sort of um, prevailing bias there so you're it is a gender uh, many gendered sorts of activism yes so it's uh, those reality. that are either leaders in the community or they're latinos or latin latinx themselves um but those are the organizations that make up or the individuals that make up the latino leadership council and you were going to say something more about that before i brought my <laughs> it's point okay up. no worries um so the uh organizations and the individuals that are represented in the council run the gamut they go from housing to other healthcare agencies, to other advocacy groups. It's a very, very diverse group in of itself. And you mentioned already the women's marches and coming up in in next month in early August, you're going to be in, uh, launching the American Asian Pacific Islander Leadership Council as well to yes. capture that population that's always underrepresented. We talk about that in many different kinds of public health coverage on this show. Right. No, yes, exactly. So we're going to be starting our AAPI Leadership Council, which is going to be on August 5th. That'll be an, our inaugural meeting. We're very excited about this. And it's, it'll be very similar to our Latino Leadership Council. However, um, you know, the community came to us and it was, you know, such, such a great story how you meet people and things yes. just kind of manifest, right? So um, they come over and they say, you know, yet, you know, we really want to figure out how we talk about reproductive justice and just reproductive health care in the AAPI community. However, we want to also have a space for advocacy because we feel we're there. We just have folks that need to figure out how to come together and do something. So this is going to be a little bit different in that sense where we're going to be looking more at an advocacy component in addition to looking at service gaps and things of that nature. Well, and education, I'm thinking, because of my anecdotal mm-hmm. sorts of uh, bits of information where let's say a uh, maybe a a foreign-born Asian person or in a, a very strongly um, acculturated Asian household, sex education is not a part of the household conversation. So there must be some kind of uh, sex ed literacy that might be a part of what this council is going to be about, it's getting the message through there. So there's this public health message of protecting these ladies and, and the men. Right. And that's something that we're hoping to to find. Right. This is where we allow the community to tell us this is what we need from Planned Parenthood. This is how you can help our community and help us build healthy communities and thrive. So that's what we're expecting um, for August 5th as well. And where's the venue for all of these councils? So the venue is at our administrative offices and various others. We us- we may round robin depending on the organization and who has avail- availability. It's very much community, very much grassroots based. Okay. Well, uh, discretion is very necessary because of the vulnerability of the Office of Operations. And so I'm going to honor that. And uh, so and I'm sure my listeners will understand the basis for that. Well, recently, the Trump administration has initiated rule changes to Title 10. Anna, tell us about those and why it is that the Orange San Bernardino County branch is not affected by it, even as the general concern of the rules uh, changes uh, 
raise concern with all of us. Right. So um, this is a very harmful rule. And what first let me back up and talk about Title 10. So what Title 10 is, is a federally funded program that provides affordable birth control and reproductive health care to people with low incomes. So what the administration did was they issued a gag rule. And what this does is it bans doctors in Title 10 programs from telling women or providing any type of resource on how they can safely and legally access abortion care. So bottom line, this bill is or this rule is requiring us, Planned Parenthood, to lie to our patients. And as a trusted source for accurate reproductive health for over 100 years, that's not something we're going to be doing. So we are, uh, one thing that I want to do note is that across across California nationwide, we are still very much in effect. We are still, our doors are open and our high quality service is still being provided. So I want to make sure I put everyone at ease by letting you know our doors are still open. Um, And the current state where we're now is there are no injunctions blocking this particular rule, but we are in a state of limbo where the rule is in effect, but the healthcare human, uh, the health and human services department hasn't made it clear that it's enforcing this particular rule. So we're just in a wait and see type of mode at this point. And then you spoke to your uh, to your question with regards to our affiliate. Right. Now, um, because of our affiliates financial strength, again, this is a federally funded program, you do have to qualify to participate in the program. And at this time, we do not qualify to participate in this specific program. Um, so that's w- the biggest reason why we are not a part of the Title Temp program. However, we do understand that this is going to be devastating for California and, of course, for uh, patients nationwide. So we're still going to do our part to work with our affiliates and make sure that we're continuing this fight with regards to Title Ten. Well, Anna, this begs the question then, will other Californians be, are you expecting people from outside of the Orange San Bernardino County area to come here? for the fuller sort of lowdown on what their choices are. You know, that's still said to be seen. Um, but that's that's a consideration. A consider- I'm yeah, sure you talk about that. It's a consideration, but it's still said to be seen. And again, since we're in limbo, we our big focus, one, here locally, is making sure that we're still providing our services aside and independently of Title Ten, which we are, um, and additionally that we continue to keep our doors open and continue to have those that service model open for everyone. Well, it may be an administrative question that's beyond your purview, but I'm just wondering, there's an opportunity cost to Health and Human Service throwing out this uncertainty about what will become of Title X. If that is causing you to use other resources, all resources are precious when you're running a nonprofit. Oh, yeah. So is there an opportunity cost with dealing with that uncertainty? And that tactic is what is happening from the Trump administration. Right. Well, I can only speak to our affiliates. Uh, that's, so, yeah, yeah, sure. Um, but for our affiliates, so just just to give you a little bit more background. So um, in recent years, as you know, we do have the budget. Governor Jerry Brown and Gavin Newsom have increased our Medi-Cal rates and reimbursement rates. That Those haven't been increased since the 1980s, so we were really wow. excited about that. Um, in addition, these, these budgets that they've approved, these pro-reproductive health care budgets, they have assisted us, our affiliates specifically, in order to have a... a very sound business model in order for us to work independently of Title 10. So we do have those opportunities here in California. But again, I can only speak to our affiliate as to why we're working independently of the program. And again, just to remind you, it is a federal program, so we have to qualify to participate. So I'm going to look forward to talking to health care economists and find out that That the the savings from raising the Mm Medi-Cal rates, the savings in 
delivering more elaborate health care that when the Medi-Cal would have been at a lower rate. There, there's probably going to be some very interesting data. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Ana Gonzalez. She's Public Affairs Director of the Community Action Fund, the political action arm of Planned Parenthood, Orange and San Bernardino counties. She's talking about all the campaigns that she's, that they're involved in there. So then we have, now did you have more to say about that or should we move on to the Family Pact 2017? Sure. Um, so the supplemental. Pa- well, you talked about the supplemental payments in maybe well, it's in, not inferentially. Um, so this is a California. This is a California program, and again, so when we go back to the budget, yes, yeah. So this is the other great part about the budget. This is where uh, monies were given also to Family Pact, and what Family Pact is is a California, uh, California program, and what they do is they provide family planning services to, to low income individuals, and they do this through through providers like Planned Parenthood. We're not the only provider, but right. they do this through, through providers like us. And services include comprehensive education, assistance, and services relating to family planning. So the budget that just passed, the pro-reproductive health care budget, this is something that they will see more of an, an influx That's a state of. budget. This is a state budget, okay. and this is a state program. So increases to our Medi-Cal reimbursement rates and FPACT. Those are the two main items of our pro-reproductive health care budget that just passed. Okay. Yeah. So then there is, and it's pertinent. We've I've had some UCI law school students talk to this when it was an earlier uh, process. There is the Senate Bill Twenty Four Student Right to Access Act. Tell us what it does and its status now in the California Senate and the Planned Parenthood's role in ensuring that this is going to be worked out. <laughs> Great. Well, we're, we're politically, legislative, that. and executively. <laughs> all, all levels, as stated. So what SB 24 is, or the it's the uh, Medicated Access, uh, or students, stu- I believe it's Students' Rights Bill, called, called a couple of things. But what it does is it provides access for UCs and CSUs to have medicated abortion on college campuses. And this is all to be done by 2023. So there are funds available for Cal States and CSUs to come into compliance with this. Obviously, there's a lot of components to become compliant in order to offer medicated abortion, and that's why there's a, that p- time period from now till 2023. That's a lot of conceptions, though, between now and 2023. It is, but there they do have to make their um, health health centers on campuses comply and be able to not only provide the medication but other components to make sure that it's yeah, wow. it's prescribed safely and and things of that nature. So this is all going to happen right now. We are currently waiting for it to go through the Appropriations Committee. It has passed. Uh, the th- We're in the Assembly right now waiting to be heard by the Appropriations Committee. So that's what we're waiting on, and we're going to be watching this bill very, very closely. So anything you want to tell the listeners that their role is here in advocacy? Their role, and if they go to our uh, Facebook, you'll you'll find some great information on that as well. So if you go to Community Action Fund on Facebook, um, you will find a few calls to action in order to tell your um, your legislators to support this specific bill. So I suggest you go to uh, Community Action Fund on Facebook, look for the SB24 link, and it'll have you sign a petition in support of SB24. So Anna, is there always a Planned Parenthood Community Action Fund person on the floor in the legislature? Y- on the floor for our bills, for bills that are like this of one. reproductive They're right health- there. Yeah, 
those that are related every to single day healthcare, yeah. morning noon and night so they're they're super busy there oh uh, yes another reason to cut a little check here <laughs> so we have an addition uh, another bit of legislation to talk about and i i like to talk about it as it there's a, a larger story to it in terms of uh the local representation in the state so talk about a senate Assembly Bill 1264, the telehealth uh, legislation. Great. So the telehealth legislation is actually authored by Assemblywoman Cotty Petrie-Norris, who's a huge champion of ours. And of course, she's our representative, our representative, we're in Irvine, right, right here, our representative, Cotty Petrie-Norris. So she's a huge reproductive health care champion. And what this bill will do is it will remove barriers to accessing birth control by virtual care or an app like we have an app Planned Parenthood Direct and what it does is it clarifies vague telehealth law related to prescribing uh, medically safe medication services via telehealth. So the important part is for those for example in rural communities or those that might have transportation restrictions that can't see a doctor every time and need birth control, this bill is clarifying language so they can medically prescribe in a safe manner birth control so we're removing those barriers to care. And that's what's very important. It seems like a small change, but it's a very important one to uh, women uh, women and, and people without access to transportation, people in rural areas or folks that can't otherwise get to a doctor on a regular basis. So that seems like another public health opportunity and exactly. uh, the, there will be a positive budgetary impact by providing that lifeline to remote, whether it's urban remote or rural remote households to get care to minimize perhaps complicated health care that would have resulted without that intervention. Correct, correct. So, and what you were, I learned from this meeting we mm-hmm. were at previous or recently was that Cotty Petrie Norris's involvement with Planned Parenthood was the very beginning of her political career. Well, that's that's the beginning when we met her. So okay. while I'd love to take, we would all love to take uh, credit for for Cotty because um, she's so amazing. It was really a very interesting story. So she came about through the OC Women's Coal, uh, OC Women's March Coalition, which was. Um, way back in 2016 or uh, 2016 going into 2017 so when we're doing the planning for the very first women's march and from that day she was a great champion she was a great volunteer she was already entrenched in her community and really what we saw was her passion for just women's rights health care access that's what really kick-started her career and honestly we followed her ever since we proudly endorsed her candidacy and she is now a champion for reproductive health care so we're really excited to to have her as our representative so was she running for was she running then or you just she was just too busy she was uh, i can't recall off the bat um she i believe she announced um I want to say maybe six months to a year after, but after that. Okay. but she, she was a, been. she was a community volunteer. She was very involved in her community. Definitely. So when we talk about all these measures now, I'm really curious to know whether these are templates that you can see that other states are coming to you to help get institutionalized in, out, out in other states. Right. Well, you know, California definitely is a progressive leader in access to quality reproductive health care. And these two pieces of legislation, in addition to the budget and the increase of medical reimbursement rates, these are just examples of how California continues to expand reproductive health care. So California, in a sense, is this reproductive health care leader. And that's something that we're we're very proud of. So, so you're getting calls, you're getting mess emails about. So how do you how do we get this started in state ABC? Not not yet. But you're available for that. 
I mean, uh, it, these uh, <laughs> I can't speak to other states and what they're doing, but, but I can speak to what you're hearing what from we're doing. some. Uh, we our local affiliate probably wouldn't hear from oh, some. Okay. It would probably be other legislators. Okay, is what ah, I would think. Okay, yeah. So well, maybe that's a good question for Cotty yeah, to ask I her. Ask hey, her. are you are you seeing this from other from other legislatures in in other states? Well, I want you to talk about how involved you are in getting everybody on board because I'm I'm going to remind probably every other show from now until March we have. Not just a presidential primary, we have the federal and state offices in the primary March 3rd. Talk about the campaign to engage voters and uh, including uh, all the things, uh, advocacy nights that you have once a month. What are you doing? Because you're moving fast now, starting to send out endorsing uh, questionnaires to candidates that are starting to file. Yes, so there's a lot going on. And yes, March 3rd is coming upon us very, very quickly. Very fast. Very fast. And just for those, just a, a PSA reminder, March 3rd, Super Tuesday, that is the presidential primary. Super duper Tuesday. Super duper Tuesday. So please don't forget. Uh, <laughs> we just want to make sure that everyone knows to go vote on that day. But we are doing quite a bit. So with our advocacy nights, they're the uh, third Thursday of the month. Um, this month, we're actually going to be hosting a debate watch party. So we're really excited about that. If you can join us uh, this Thursday, that would be wonderful. And I can give you that information for your listeners as well. But the one of the biggest things that we did with regards to voter engagement last cycle was a get out the vote campaign. And we did this by engaging voters with two very simple messages. One is what's at stake for reproductive health in the context of birth control. And if this is important to you, go vote. And we received overwhelming responses. We didn't talk about candidates. All we did was talk about issue the issues. Okay. All issue related. And they heard that. And they heard that. Yes, they did. So um, voters were engaged in language across Orange County, and we educated over 100,000 voters. And again, this was in language, meaning we reached out to our Spanish-speaking voters. We reached out to our Vietnamese-speaking voters and others as well. So we're very excited about that. And we're expecting to do something similar here leading up to 2020 just to make sure folks get out the vote. Because one of the things that we found doing this exercise or doing this get out the vote effort is you know we ask the question do you know uh, there's an election coming up and many said no <laughs> good right. oh no I'm, I yeah. talked to some brass so oh, you UCI okay. administrative brass and they were expecting to wait out the primary until June and I'm you know so that was I'm just going to ask everybody and make sure that we make it very clear Great, yes. You can't miss that. We Especially miss with the, that, no. the the way it's structured now with the top two vote getters qualifying for the general regardless of party. So it's it's just so, lots going to get done. We also have time. some very important races coming yes. up as well. We have county board of supervisors races that are on March 3rd. We have, um, I believe, the uh, board of supervisors. So there's there will be local races included on this March 3rd primary. So please, please, please vote down ballot um, when you are out there on Super Tuesday. So quickly, as we close the show, the segment here, how is in every way the best ways to follow all of these events so people know where to go, people know what to do, people know what's happening? Yes. So the best way to get in touch with us is by, via social media. So online, we are www.communityactionfund.org. On Facebook, we are communityactionfund.org. So the little at sign and communityactionfund.org. And on Twitter, we are ACT, P-P-O-S-B-C. 
So if you want information on the latest and greatest on these events, on all our calls to action, petition signings, please follow us on social media. If you have any uh, questions or just sign up for the Community Action Fund, you can do that on our website at www.communityactionfund.org. Well, that was a race through a whole lot of work that you do all the time. Ana Gonzalez, I want to thank you so much for coming in studio and giving us this time today. It's been lovely. Thank you so much. It was a wonderful opportunity. I really enjoyed it. I am going to thank again Ana Gonzalez, who is Public Affairs Director of the Community Action Fund, political action arm of Planned Parenthood and Orange, of Orange and San Bernardino counties, talking about all those campaigns. So stay tuned, everybody. There, Everybody get your sleeves rolled up. There's a lot of work to do between now and March 3rd. We'll be back after a short station break with Dr. Matthew Zond, the current medical director of the Division of Epidemiology Assessment for Orange County Health Care. Be right back. Don't go away. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. My next guest is Dr. Matthew Zahn, specialist in pediatric infectious diseases, currently serving as the medical director of the Division of Epidemiology and Assessment for the Orange County Health Care Agency. Dr. Zahn received his doctorate in medicine from St. Louis University School of Medicine, and from 2004, through 2011, he served as medical director for the Louisville Metro Department of Public Health and Wellness. During that time, he also served as an assistant professor of pediatric infectious disease at the University of Louisville School of Medicine. He has served on multiple national public health committees, including currently serving as the chair of the Infectious Disease Society of America's Public Health Work Group. He comes to us today from Santa Ana and will be taking up with us the vaccination policies and implementation in Orange County as we compare with the rest of the state. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Dr. Matthew Zahn. I appreciate that. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you. Well, let's first let's talk about what the state statutes currently require in the way of vaccinations. I believe it's from effective 2016, correct? Yeah, that's correct. As of now, the requirements for entry into kindergarten are that essentially children have received all immunizations that are standardly recommended by the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices from the CDC. So the group that makes standard uh, public health national recommendations the mandate is that uh, children have those immunizations when they enter school and are up to date uh, unless they have a medical reason not to have received those immunizations. And so the compliance is with the kindergarten entrance and it's to maintain, it's to update the record so that when uh, enrollments for later grades, that still has to be proven that they're up to date, correct? No, that's correct. The There are specific time points, really, when, when schools assess that. It's an entry into kindergarten and then at seventh grade as well. But the mandate is really that when children 
enter into school be up to date on their immunizations. That's correct. And so the change was at 2016 that Senator Pond had uh, sponsored, because I guess he, he's sort of like the poster legislator for, <laughs> for upping the requirements for uh, the household. So Yeah, a former pediatrician. Right. Um, and, uh, yeah, and, and definitely an advocate for sure. So and when I look up the uh, stats on a line, the percentage, so it was a transitioning away, the no longer could families use the personal belief exemption. It was now it was a matter of a medical exemption. So uh, we can look at the year around when, when it, the law came into effect, the obligation of parents and their to their children being vaccinated at 2016 you can see the convergence of uh, as the personal belief exemptions were dropping literally to about oh, to zero then uptick of medical exemptions so let's talk about the trends in Orange County what's the sort of the spatial trend and the what what are trends that we need to know to understand what's really going on cuz i know some people people have a sort of an, an notion of where the cultures are of certain public health beliefs? Well, we've certainly seen an an increase in rates of children who are up to date on immunization when they enter kindergarten uh, over the last couple of years. And that's certainly been encouraging from a public health standpoint. Okay. Uh, if If you look at Orange County, we've sort of mirrored what's gone on in the state. Uh, in Orange County, we had overall about 92% of our children were up to date when entering kindergarten 2014-2015. As of last year, 2017-2018, overall, just over 95% of our children uh, are now up to date when they enter into school. And you know, so you can look at that a couple of ways. One is that in 92 to 95%, that you know, that's the three percent change doesn't feel like a huge change. On the other hand, if you look at the number of children who are not up to date on your immunizations, it's a significant drop in that percentage. And so, so we're certainly encouraged by what we've seen in the last couple of years in terms of immunization rates, at least. And Dr. Zahn, the herd protection, is the threshold met at about 95% compliance to vaccinations? Yeah, broadly speaking, that's the number that we look for. I, I think it's always really important for people to realize that that, you know, ninety-five percent is is a very general number for a very general situation. For us, we know that our immunization rates are high throughout the county. The goal remains to make sure that there aren't pockets, there aren't areas, there aren't specific communities where the immunization rates are lower, because as a county of three million over three million people. Right. You know, if you have a, a few communities or a, you know, or a few schools where immunization rates are lower, that still points to a potential risk. And so, again, the, the trend is certainly encouraging, but I think that we're, I kind of avoid looking at it from too, too broad of a brush. Well, does it pe- depend on, too, what kind of infection that, where that herd no, protection you, you, is? You're absolutely right. The uh, unfortunately, the gold standard, if you will, of of infectious germs is measles, which we've seen a lot in the news, and we've right. certainly seen cases recently in Orange County, and in the last few years, we've seen outbreaks in Orange County. 
Measles is a different animal than mumps, which is a different animal than the flu. So that they're all a bit different. Uh, certainly, measles gathers a lot of attention, and for good reason, because it is so infectious. You know, if you have measles, for example, if you were in the same room even a big room, breathing the same air as someone else who has measles, you don't have to come right face to face with them. If you're breathing that air, you could get infected with measles. And so in particular, that's a germ that we really want to make sure that kids are. So let's are, break it down. Like, let's, excuse me. Uh, let's sure. break it down then that, that let's say someone who's not been protected by immunization, they use a computer keyboard and they are incubating a measles bacteria. And then they leave and somebody who's not protected comes to that keyboard. I mean, that's that's how easily that could be transmitted. Yeah, that, that's right. In fact, we know that for measles, uh, people argue about exactly how long the period is. There is a period of time after you leave that room where you breathe that air where people who come into that room after you've gone can still become infected with the germ. The, the germ stays there in the air for either one hour to two hours, somewhere in that period of time. But it's, it's not a trivial risk. No, not at all. So, and in preparation for this interview, you talked a little bit about the sort, there's a geographic kind of trend within Orange County of immunization compliance. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, sure. You, you, you go north to south, and then for many years that trend has existed, and our immunization rates are improved, but the, you know, the, the rates have, and the differences have not changed entirely. In the northern part of our county, you know, when I say 95% overall of our current county is up to date for immunizations, well, that's you know, somewhere in 97 to 99% in most of the schools in the northern part of the county. In the southern part of the county, you will be in the, more in the 90% uh, range. So, wow. yeah, so we've certainly certainly seen that discrepancy, and you know, you, you, we, we certainly are very pleased because if you look at over time, even the southern part of the county, we have definitely seen an increase in rates. But but you're right, that discrepancy exists. Something about being below the 55 um, leads to <laughs> leads to lower immunization rates. Well, and there's probably a lot of reasons why. Dr. Zahn, does that concern you, that 90% compliance rate? Well, you know, if it, and, you know that's in Laguna Beach and, and San Juan Capistrano, those communities, the overall rates are somewhat lower. And does that mean that if you introduce an infectious agent like measles into those community, Oof. we worry a bit more that there be an outbreak of infection there. Yeah, they, you know, the immunization rates does translate to risk. It's very broad. It's not very, not quite as simple as one to one. And again, you don't want to be too broad with the brush. But yeah, those immunization rates, they they confer risk in those communities. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest on Ask a Leader is Dr. Matthew Zahn, specialist in pediatric infectious diseases, currently serving as the medical director of the Division of Epidemiology and Assessment for the Orange County Healthcare Agency. And we're talking about childhood immunization policies and trends. I wanted to ask now that apparently that the legislation does not require homeschooled kindergartners or homeschooled children at all uh, to be immunized. So we're seeing an uptick in homeschooled children in Orange County, but uh, it's not 
necessarily attributable to avoiding the immunization requirements, but it still it still is a factor, is it not? I, that's very hard to say. You know, we people people speculate about it, and it, you know, there you could say that it could make some sense, but we it's very very hard to know. Hard to know a relationship there. So I'd like to talk about the policing of your society of physicians. How are pediatricians involved in unscrupulous dispensing of exemptions? How are they being monitored and how is that being implemented? How is that being tracked? Yeah, it's a good question. And public health and you know, and, and medical associations are paying a lot of attention to this question. And the, the issue you raise and the concern that we have is that there, you know, there does seem to be availability online, if you look for it, uh, physicians who were uh, essentially advertised that they would be willing to find medical exemptions or willing to, you know, consider medical exemptions in patients. And when they advertise in that way, the, the concern then is that they may be more likely to confer medical exemptions just for spurious reasons, for reasons that aren't real medicine. How do you assess that and how do you prevent that from happening? That's, that's, that's not a small issue. And, and, and again, I think a lot of us have thought hard about how to do it. Okay. In public health, we rely heavily on physicians who are taking care of children. You know, when I when we hear that a child at a school may have mumps or they may have measles, the first thing I say is they have to go to their doctor and their doctor has to assess them and decide whether there's a risk here or not. You know, you, you want the medical professional making the decision. When you get kids immunized, it's really important to have medical professionals go over their appropriate immunizations. And if there is a good medical reason not to get immunized, that physicians or medical providers identify that. So we take that really seriously. There have been concerns raised about physicians in Orange County and in other counties in the state about whether they are uh, producing spurious immunization uh, medical exemptions. Um, Right now, the method to go forward really is the uh, California Medical Board. If there are physicians, and this is for any physician for any reason, right. if they be, seem to be practicing in a method that does not adhere to understood national standards, and that includes making immunization recommendations that do not adhere to standards, then they can be referred to the California Medical Board for for review. That's really the way forward right now to do that. You don't want to be random. You don't want you know, someone without an appropriate process deciding that these these immunizations or these recommendations by a doctor are spurious. Uh, that's something we take seriously. So right now, it's it's really working through the the California Medical Board. I think you know there is additional legislation that is being proposed uh, up in Sacramento that would apply statewide. That would potentially put public health in a role of assessing um, medical exemptions and their appropriateness. We'll see how that works through. Um, uh, you know, again, from all sides, everybody I think is really wants to make sure that if there is a process, it's thorough, it's reasonable, and it doesn't interfere with the, the doctor-patient relationship because we all rely on that, including in public health, most definitely. Well, we certainly can understand the importance of that, of handling that, because it's there are so many in a kind of a conspiracy mentality about you know, 
all of the factors that obligate people to have immunizations. So I, I guess you don't want to give any more fodder to to those people that are suspicious of public health in general. Yeah, and I and I think and I think everybody everybody wants to be you know wants to be treated fairly. And from our side, there's absolutely no doubt that these vaccines are safe and they provide both you know safety to to the children and they provide safety to the children around the children you know the other kids in the classroom with you um, and so we, we are very confident and strongly believe and we have seen how important immunizations are to prevent disease in our community At the same time you want to you know, for for you know for families who have concerns about which immunizations their children should get, you want to make sure that they are seeing good medical providers and their medical providers are being supported. So there's all sides you want to make. You want to make sure get served here. So briefly, I just want to anticipate some listeners' question about, is it not, though, an easy thing for maybe at the local level, public health care agencies can monitor who's advertising or who's a sort of or, or a clustering of where medical exemptions are occurring right. in areas where the the rates right. the immunization compliance rates are already at the lower part of the county well again you know um is, are there ways that you could assess it yes but you want to be fair to everybody Correct. i think one of the proposals and uh, you know this this is just one proposal the way you could look at it is simply looking at clinicians who are and the number of medical exemptions that are being provided and if you are a very large pediatric practice well you may see a certain number of kids who have real medical conditions that you know they shouldn't be okay. receiving one or their vaccine in other situations you may note that there is a provider who is who's providing either a very large number or an outsized number of medical exemptions you know it just seems like size of practice or number of exemptions just sort of unusual. Those are, are what's being proposed um, in the legislation. I will say, and from a public health yes. side, it's not something that we have been in the business of before. So I, I, I can tell you from my side, before we decide to do to pursue this in any way, we'd really have to think through that we're, we're doing this in an equitable manner, because we are the government after all. And if you, if you have a process that isn't actually going to be identifying, you know, holistically everybody. You don't want to be going after one, you know, right. as an issue. You want to be going after, you know, or, or you know, or addressing people who, you know, in a consistent fashion. So yeah, it's a long way of saying I really think we, it's really important for us to have a consistent fashion of identifying uh, and addressing the issue. It's it's if, pretty gran- if any legislation come through. I'm sorry. It's pretty granular for someone in your position to. Uh, you know, where you're leading and in, in, in directing policy and that kind of thing. But I'm just wondering if in your agency, people can see a pattern that when there are measles outbreaks, that it does improve the immunization rates. Well, yeah, it's a great question. You know, you know, for us, <laughs> Senate Bill 277, which passed in 2016, and Dr. Pan, Senator Pan's bill, um, passed uh, shortly after we had a significant measles outbreak in Orange County. Right. And so many people have asked us, well, do you think that that outbreak drove immunization rates? But the truth is that the passage of that bill probably was going to be the main driver, you know, no matter what. So it's, you know, on a, from, a, from a population surveillance side, it's really hard for me to give you an answer to that. From a 
anecdote from a story side, the outbreak that we saw associated with Disneyland in 2015 certainly drove a lot of attention to people in the community who recognized that, uh, you know, if other children in my child's school are not getting immunized, well, there's a potential risk there. You know, there's a, there's a potential risk to my child. There's a potential risk to our community. People have certainly become more aware of that, and that's certainly driven the conversation. How it affects numbers, that can be hard to tell. But I, I think it's certainly, it's certainly been on people's minds. Well, in closing, Dr. Zahn, where would you direct listeners for good sources of information so that parents are really clear on the science? Yeah, I think that the, the CDC has a great deal of information for, you know, for it's certainly for medical people, but it's also a lot of good information for uh, for the lay public. And then they keep up those, their website up to date on multiple types of immunizations, the types of immunizations that are recommended, the types of immunizations that you need in certain circumstances, particularly travel, you know, people or, or other sort of you know, high-risk situations. So go to the CDC website, and you'll find a lot of good information on, on immunizations. Well, that's really helpful. Well, I'd like to thank you, Dr. Zahn, for being on Ask a Leader today. I appreciate having the time. Thank you. Thank you. My guest was Dr. Matthew Zahn, specialist in pediatric infectious diseases, currently serving as the medical director of the Division of Epidemiology and Assessment for the Orange County Health Care Agency. Well, that was my wrap, everybody. Next week, I'll have on Jack Cheevers. He's the Public Information Officer for Region 9 of the U.S. Centers for Medicare and Medicaid. He'll talk about the basics and intricacies of Medicare enrollment. Then in the second half, George Shea, playwright and children's book author, has a nugget of a production to talk about, Dr. Keeling's Curve, a subversive and lovely play for these times for all audiences. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>